Welcome to another episode of Pat and the Fat Man. We're like to talk about movies, sports, and whatever else we feel like. I'm Pat. And I'm the Fat Man. Fat Man. So to all of our fans, we're going to say thank you for bearing with us. Uh, both me and Bruce changed jobs recently, and that put our schedules really out of whack, as well as um, mine is a lot more work. And so I, I don't have as much time to do this. And on the other side of it, technology decided to eat our last four recordings, um, which is very, very frustrating and painful. It's, it's something we've been through before, unfortunately, but I think we've got a more permanent solution now. I'm hopeful, at least. Hopefully. <laughs> Shoo. That, um, that's where we're at. So today we're going to be talking about Red Dawn again. Back Wolverine. to the dawn of the Red Dawn. Wolverines! And such. <laughs> so we last left off the, um, the colonel was looking over the dead bodies of his men that were killed by the Wolverines, our heroes as they are. Going off about how he's seen it before in Nicaragua, Costa Rica, you know, places like that. Now he's in this different role. He's like, these were my men. I'm used to, you know, when he was naming these places off, you could tell that he's like, I'm not used to this because, you know, I was the insurgent killing the man. And now it's kind of flipped on me. <laughs> right. So this kind of belies his, you know, what we used to call like the some of the brush fire wars or whatever you want to call it, but the the communist insurgencies that were all over South America. So you had typically the propped up, you know, by the U.S. or NATO powers governments in you know Nicaragua or Honduras or, or wherever in South America, and then you had the guerrillas who were typically communist, and that means they were funded by the Soviet Union. You know, it was sort of like yeah, they're bastards, but they're our bastards, kind of a deal with a lot of the uh, dictators because <laughs> that's effectively what they were. So, but it was all part of this, you know, theoretical viewpoint about communism that said, you know, and it, it was sort of built out of what Marx outlined in, in the manifesto that like once the worker revolution started, it was going to be a domino effect and all of the bourgeoisie capitalist uh, stuff was going to get overthrown and all the governments were going to get overthrown. And that was, that was the general worry as part of the multiple red scares that the U S went through. A lot of people think there was only like one. No, no, there were more than one. Well, they've been <laughs> was, going on since the fifties. I mean, since McCarthy. <laughs> right. Well, that was one of them. And then you had the, and, and it's funny because McCarthy was fairly moderate <laughs> compared to a lot of the, the ultra uh, anti-red folks. You might not think he was, but he was. Trust me. <laughs> I think that brings out what we're trying to define what moderate is on the scale. So, I mean, if that's moderate, then that's pretty scary because he was willing to just throw anybody in jail, even for the thought that they might be a communist. <laughs> Never mind that, you know, the that we have the right to assemble for whatever reason we want. No, he didn't care. You're going to jail. <laughs> right. And that was, I mean, that was the general viewpoint of quite a bit of the population at that time. So, one, you know, you have another kind of red scare going on in the 70s uh, that effectively this is sort of modeled after this, this thought process that, okay, we have to prop up these governments, even though they're not necessarily good governments, they're effectively dictatorships. But if we don't, then it's, we're going to see a whole bunch of revolutions in South America. And then our own hemisphere is going to be a you know, puppet controlled arm by the Soviet Union, which I mean, would have 
and was terrible for those countries that did end up doing that, like Cuba, you know, extraordinarily close to, you know, American shoreline and a huge, huge headache. You know, the funny part is, is that much in the way that America does a lot of things, they're like, hey, they're doing that. Maybe we can do it, too. <laughs> and the problem was is that we really weren't connected to the world <laughs> at this point. We were kind of showboating how you know great our freedom and Americanism was. So, But we tried to do the same thing. We tried to pay people to fight our enemies because we thought that in the end they would become our friends. And in many, many cases, that did not turn out to be the case. <laughs> The problem with fighting proxy wars, which is effectively what the U.S. and the Soviet Union were doing, what everybody fell aground of was the fact that you couldn't bring in the second army. Right. Right. So you you have, you know, World War One, World War Two. the concept of the second army was you had your army, the, the first army, the actual army, like go through and kill the enemy and take over the area or liberate the area or whatever it was. And then the second army would come through with the food and the medicine and the rebuilding of the, you know, schools and the churches and the town and, and the engineers and all of that stuff. And when you fight a proxy war, you don't even have a first army, right? You're paying somebody else to fight for you and you don't have enough funds, even if you wanted to, to pay for a second army. And so the goodwill building that is supposed to come after the actual fighting doesn't happen. You can look at the the problems we have with the more modern wars because the whole notion of the second army was kind of completely dropped. Right. The modern wars that we fought in Afghanistan and in Iraq. Well, the thing was, is that we were supposed to be the second army because we had the resources. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had the ability to provide food and materials that, a lot of those other countries couldn't that were the first army, you know? Yeah. But all of a sudden, we're taking the charge and asking all the other countries to come in and do the other part. And you're like, we could try. We don't have as much stuff, but we could try. And they really weren't that committed, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> because it wasn't really something that they, per se, had a problem with. They're like, eh, we can get along with most people. We just don't want... The, the problem was other people had a problem with us. <laughs> right. So this is what the colonel is alluding to, is the fact that he was a commander in, was it Nicaragua? Yeah. And he was on the other side of the ball, right? He was somebody who was killing the enemy in sort of surprise attacks or, or guerrilla warfare. And now he's on the other side of the ball. And, and this is really where we see like kind of the second step in his development as a character. Because the first step you got was him coming into town, right? And you see him taking charge and, you know, okay, this is a total, you know, this is madness or mayhem. Right. Somebody needs to take charge and he sort of does take charge. And then kind of the step after that, okay, well now that I'm in charge, like we're the occupying force and now I'm having to deal with gorillas and I don't like this. <laughs> like, I don't like being on the other side of the ball. Like these are my men. And normally I can curse the capitalist pig dogs who are, you know, paying people to fight me, freeing my country. But now I'm I'm the invader. Right. Like that wonderful episode of Futurama where like, wait a minute, where are the invading aliens? <laughs> <laughs> Especially, you know, considering he's like, I didn't expect this. We're 400 miles behind the lines. Where is this coming from? <laughs> yeah. So you see that. And then the next thing we see is the front of um, it used to be a bar. It's called the Soviet American Friendship Center. It's written both in American English and in Russian Cyrillic. Is that what they call it? Yeah, yeah, it's really. You see a, a Russian soldier leaning up against the, the pillar. He's wearing a um, a beret because a lot of people can't pull off the beret. 
it's a certain look. So, I mean, I can't do the beret. You know, Bruce did a beret once. Whether or not he pulled it off, I don't know, but he did it. Oh, yeah, it was fun. <laughs> so you see the soldier just kind of hanging out. I guess he's, you know, doing nothing after a bunch of guys just got killed. So, <laughs> like you do. Right, like you do. And out of the the Soviet American Friendship Center comes Tony, Jennifer Grey. And as she walks by, of course, the soldier's like, hey, pretty lady, you know, why don't you come hang out with me and my friend? She's like, oh, yeah, I'll be right back. <laughs> and she's like, okay, bring a friend. She's like, oh, yeah, okay, sure. Walks away. Yeah. And <laughs> as she's walking away, she walks right past the colonel and the general, this general, Rachenko was his name. Yeah. So this sort of cements Tony as the package deliverer, as the infiltrator, as the infiltrator is kind of the face that because in the previous engagement, she was, you know, the on the bike, right? Being hassled by the she was the bait, right? She was the bait. Nah, there's the word for it. <laughs> <laughs> she was the bait and she delivered the picnic basket bomb that blew up the tank and then ran past the guys under the ground to set up the trap. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting because you see, like, she's taken on that role, whereas uh, Jennifer Thomas, Marty McFly's or mom. Leah Thompson. <laughs> Leah Thompson. Leah Thompson. Leah, yeah. I can't believe her. God damn it. Come on, man. I know. Marty McFly's mom. <laughs> I know, man. She, she was the hottie of the 80s. <laughs> it's kind of still a hottie. I'll go on record and say it. Go look at a picture. She's still kind of a hottie. <laughs> Okay, I don't I don't need to know anymore than that. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> you're judging. God, maybe we were better off with the communists. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that character, Erica, she is sort of set up as as like a killer. And that's kind of what she does in the very, very first engagement, although badly. She kind of handles the machine gun badly, but she still shoots the guy up. Whereas Tony is sort of setting up as as kind of the bait or the face, so Erica's the like the killer, and Tony is is the bait. It, it's just interesting to see that play out, and and it's always interesting to see kind of the invasion force view of the locals, right? Right. You get this this very big feel, and then you got that feel from the scene with the tank crew, like they were going after Tony, uh, and you got kind of a slightly less frenzied version of that with this guy, you know, telling the local girl, Hey, bring your friends, you know, like, like they would be very much interested in (laughs) doing something with the people that, you know, took over their town and killed their friends. (laughs) Right. But it's sort of this invasion force mentality that now you folks belong to us. And so you should get in line with that. This also goes back to kind of early Soviet propaganda. Well, propaganda is not the right word early Soviet policy when they took over Russia or gained control of Russia, I should say, they pushed this agenda of, I mean, it was weird. It was sort of similar to like the free love agenda in the seventies from the hippies, but it was sort of like this, you know, every, every good Soviet woman should be available for any good Soviet man kind of a thing. I mean, it was a policy they had at like the very beginning that they then had to abandon rapidly because their birth rate started to drop. <laughs> right. And so they were, and you know, families being the core unit of a society, the, the, the whole thing started to unravel and it's gotten worse and worse as, as you know, the Soviet union went on and on, but it's kind of sort of, you get to see that sort of portrayed 
here too, on top of the whole invasion thought process about like, okay, we own you now. Tony, um, she literally walks like in front of both the colonel and this general. They're about 50 feet from her, but she walks right in front of them, <laughs> right across their path. The colonel's explaining to the, the general about, you know, who the the wolverines are and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he t- tells him, look, I don't have experience with this kind of military action, but it seems to me that if we want this to go easier on us, we have to win the hearts and minds of the people that we've conquered, just like they did in Vietnam. And he points out, and he goes, you know, well, and the general points out that they lost Vietnam. To be fair, with what little research I remember doing in college about it, we came into that conflict way late and oh, way, way were late. not helped at all by what the French did. <laughs> no. Yeah. The French. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like we came the, into the that. French foreign policy was so like throughout all of history. <laughs> they were just so bad outside of the continent of Europe. Terrible, terrible governors. Right. Let's talk about this general. First of all, <laughs> like, he looks like a human weasel. Yes. Yes, he does. <laughs> or a human rat. <laughs> and I was thinking he was Arab, but he's probably um, Afghani. Afghani. Because he mentions Afghanistan. Yeah. So that's another interesting. He doesn't really look Russian, right? Right. He's supposed to give off the because fi- you see, there's a very different way of dressing between the colonel and the general here. The general is sort of in the stereotypical Russian hat and the Russian overcoat and everything. And the general is wearing the beret because he can pull it off. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it's a very central and South American military style. Right. And so you you, kind of get these two different sort of worldviews and and this conversation between the rat man (laughs) or the weasel man (laughs) and the guy who's somewhat mourning the loss of his own troops and going, yikes, I, you know, this, this is really not good. This is not how I want to play ball. Right. It's a very clear representation that there is a disconnect of some variety between Russia overarching, you know, the USSR sort of control and the actual guys on the ground. Right. And this was a good way to portray that. The general starts mentioning how things are paralyzed at the front and that morale is crucial and to keep all the men inside the secure zones. And then after a time, they'll forget who the Wolverines are. And then about, I don't know, five seconds right after he says that there's a huge explosion at the bar. <laughs> Boom! Boom! <laughs> right. Uh, the guy who was trying to hit on Tony's, you know, yeah, he's outside. He falls to the ground. You know what? Not one of the colonel's aides goes, "Why are you guys okay?" Like, yeah, that's fine. Go check it out. You know, and then you know the colonel turns to the general and goes, "What were you just saying?" Yeah. <laughs> the general basically told him to shut up. Yeah, he, just, he gives him this look. It's like shut <laughs> your damn mouth. <laughs> <laughs> And then I don't know if they're trying to make us feel sorry for the Russians at some point or trying to humanize them. But the guy who was hitting on Tony is now on his knees, uh, cradling a guy who's just bloodied and all, you know, you know, blown, you know, blown up, you know, and he's looking around going, what's happening here? Yeah. Like I said, I don't know if we were meant to feel sorry for him or what. (laughs) Yeah. And I think this just goes back to the the generalized horrors of war, which I think this movie does a really good showcasing and and not pulling punches. Because, you know, what you typically get in a lot of movies is one side is bad and the other side's good, and hurting one side is good and hurting and not hurting the other side is bad. And in this, it's like, okay, well, this is a kid, right? He's probably 18 or 19. He got more than likely conscripted, or maybe he signed up in in sort of a frenzy of zeal or whatever. Yeah, from propaganda. Yeah, and now he's on the line. 
and and sure, you know, he acts like a, a jack in the <laughs> in the previous scene there, but does he deserve to die for that? Like, how do we feel about that? Like he's it, it's it's very much the the bringing into the concept of okay he is a combatant sure but he's not fighting at the moment he's he's stopped and so what's the morality or the philosophy behind that action because we like to talk about things it's a we usually like to talk about a fight where both combatants know that they're fighting and maybe one's out outmaneuvered or outgunned or whatever and so maybe it's not quite a fair fight but at least it's a fight everybody knows is happening. And with sabotage and with guerrilla warfare, you very much don't have that. Like you have a very gray, there are people who are bad, who have killed people in combat, but they were in combat at the time. They knew like that their life was on the line and now they're in a position where they think they're safe and now we're killing them. There's this very mean vengeance kind of a streak running through that that sort of taints the whole thing. Like you're, you're, you, it's not like a a match fight. Well, certainly there's a disconnect. Like this guy probably wasn't there during the first wave. Like he wasn't there when they first got there and were shooting up the high school and everyone in sight. Right. So he doesn't understand how that animosity came about. He just figures, oh, we came in here and beat you, and you're just you know sore about that. Not like, oh yeah, we came in there and shot your you know your your fathers and your brothers and you know you know took you out somewhere else you know and just done all these horrible horrible things so he yeah like you said he doesn't understand where he was and how he got there (laughs) right and so but now we're watching watching him suffer for it and i mean is this a clean kill obviously not but is it something the wolverines are totally behind and you know let's face it occupied america you know the occupied people in the town at this time would totally be behind this action but it just doesn't feel good, does it? And so I, I think it's very kudos to the director for including these kind of scenes and not you could just stop it at the general and the, the colonel kind of have their little exchange after the explosion. But instead, you actually show this scene. And I think it's it's good on the director to show that war is horrible in all respects. <laughs> like, And there are lots of reasons for it. Yeah. Yeah. So then uh, after we move on to the next scene, we see the change in time again. It labels it as November. We're on to November. We started in what, September? Beginning of school, probably pretty soon after, you know, Labor Day, early, mid-September. There's already been a football game. So, yeah. now you know, we've gone through October and October was kind of the beginning. Yeah. And then their slow changeover to being a, a fighting force of some kind of guerrilla force. And now we've reached... November and they're actively taking action against uh, the occupying force at this point. So they've moved from survivalist in September all the way to guerrilla, you know, warfare in November. So November to me, October is sort of the changeover month. We get both survivalist and sort of guerrilla action. And then November is almost all guerrilla at that point. Right. So the first thing we see in this new month is Erica, Leah Thompson on not patrol, but like more like, you know, guard watch, guard duty, you know, watchtower duty. And you hear jet sounds overhead and she, you see her, she's looking up at the sky and then you see a smoke ring. You know, you hear an explosion, you see the smoke ring. So obviously that was indicate that a jet was shot down. And then you see her look off into the distance and watching it something. And then it shows you the picture of a, a crashed jet pilot ejector seat. She sees the, uh, the pilot 
huddled up in uh, the parachute cloth, and she goes over there and, and she kicks him up, and and, and uh, he's like, "Relax, I'm American." She goes, "Yeah, well, what's the capital of Texas?" And he goes, "Austin." She goes, "Wrong, it's Houston." Houston. <laughs> 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 or she asked, "Are you American?" He's like, "The last I checked, they're red blooded," is what he said. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and she's like, well, "What's the capital of Texas? Austin, <laughs> Houston, wrong, <laughs> 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 Houston, come." You're like, "Wait a minute." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as, as red blooded Texans, it's kind of like, uh, I mean, I, I know how you could make that mistake, Houston. Uh, in comparison to the three big. One's Dallas, uh, Houston, and San Antonio. Austin is a very small city, bigger than it used to be. But uh, yeah, no, sorry, Houston is not the uh, not the capital. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's like, "Oh, stop it! You've seen too many movies. I'm too cold, and you've seen too many movies." Yeah. He's like, "Oh yeah, you hungry?" And it's like, you're "Like yeah, I could eat." And next thing you know, he's at the camp with all the guys. And- yeah, so it's interesting. So you you see like you hear the noises right, and she's kind of looking up, and you, and you. I guess somebody explodes or gets shot or there's there's noise to indicate that. And then you see him, him kind of crashed and her come up to him. He's like, he's got his eyes closed when she goes up to him, right? Yeah. He was like asleep. Yeah. Or like, yeah, knocked out or something, but she, he seems to come to pretty quickly. Right. From the high angle that she was at, it probably took her some time to get down there. Yeah. He may not have known that anyone was around, so you figured, well, I just got done with that adrenaline rush. Let's just take a nap behind this bush and hope no one sees me. Yeah, you know? yeah. That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll figure out if I you know, live through the sleep, then you know, I'll find out what to do next. So he goes back to camp. I think it's Aardvark. Asked him what kind of plane he flew. He said he used to fly, or that he did fly an F-15. Ardwar gives him a, a Russian hat, and he goes, pull this off a dead Russian major, and he goes, major, huh? Well, it ought to fit a colonel. <laughs> <laughs> and then you see uh, Jed and Matt walk up. I guess they were conversing about what to do with the guy or something. <laughs> uh, the colonel... Now we know that he knows that he's a colonel. Answer you the head honcho. <laughs> just stares at him, giving him the the silent treatment. Uh, duh. <laughs> <laughs> Don't I look like the head honcho? Kind of a a feel to it. Jed's like, you know, how'd you get shot down, Kurt? I was like, well, it was, <laughs> uh, it was five to one. I got four of them. Yeah. So this is an interesting sort of dominance interplay sort of thing. So the first time we saw Jed you know, kind of take control or sort of assert dominance or however you want to put it over the group was Daryl sort of challenges him at the very get go. And there's sort of a little scrape about that. And, um, but Jed's always kind of been on top. He's the oldest, you know, he had the truck, he had his brother as his right hand man automatically that scene where they take Danny hunting and they're, you know, the Jed is effectively in control. And then suddenly this guy who's in military dress, who obviously was a fighter pilot of some kind, who's claiming to be a colonel, is is now shown up. And sort of there's this weariness on Jed's part. Like, am I going to have to give up control? Do I even want to give up control? Um, I know this guy is obviously military. He's got probably information we want. We've just gone into this mode. You know, we've moved from being a survivalist group where if they had found this guy, they probably would have been like, oh, hey, you know, you can tell us where to go or give us information to being like, now we're at war. Right. That's the conflict between recognizing now you have someone who can actually help you that's of real help 
and not wanting to give up what you have because what you have is secure and safe as far as you know because you haven't suffered anything like you're doing good as far as you can tell there's the known versus the unknown there's this whole interplay between them you know why'd you get shot down kind of like maybe you're not as good as you think you are (laughs) you know sort of a deal or you know that he might be a spy too there's that part of it too i'm sure at this point jed has has gotten a little bit paranoid or at least has thought that there's a possibility that they're coming after them Mm -hmm. that really ramps up a little later in the movie but there's this interesting interplay that goes on. I think it sort of just diffuses itself, right? The way the captain answers and, you know, they just sort of come to this mutual respect of each other. Like the captain just says, okay, yeah, you're the head honcho here. Right. And I'm right. And then you move on to the next scene where he's just sort of explaining what happened to them. So you learn that how it all happened. You saw what happened, but you really didn't understand how the entire thing happened. He explains that the first team attack came disguised as commercial flights, just like they did in uh, uh, Afghanistan. And they had these commando units just fly in in commercial flights and then all of a sudden just spread out from there. You know, you know, cut off lines of supply all over the place. Then they made selective uh, nuclear attacks throughout the uh, the Midwest, uh, like the Dakotas and um, NORAD and places like that, you know, from the Dakotas straight on down into Texas. Right. And that brings up sort of a, you know, there was a lot of work done on what were called tactical nuclear strikes in, I guess, the early days of, of you know, nuclear warfare or you know, mm-hmm. nu- the nuclear arm race. The concept that you could, you have a very small kind of contain nuclear explosion and then you'd be able to send troops in after that or or it wouldn't completely irradiate the area that kind of a thing it wouldn't be like nagasaki and, and hiroshima would be on a smaller scale and then you could invade after that and there's a lot of work on that the concept being that like you wouldn't be firing ballistic missiles you wouldn't be having the planes dropping the bombs and it's it's sort of a way to bypass the mutually assured destruction considering that the invasion force is already on your land right so like they're already on u.s soil so if you use your nuke, if you have your nukes and you use them you'd be nuking yourself you'd be nuking yourself potentially and so you don't want to do that and then the other problem is if you fire mad is still in play right so if you f- right. fire the soviet union or the china or whoever then they're going to fire at you still. Right. You know, it's two guys with guns pointed at each other also having a knife fight now <laughs> is effectively what's going on. And so you have these very limited limited nuclear strikes. Whether or not that would would or would not have triggered Matt, I, I, I got to be honest, I'm not really sure. It is a little bit of an I believe button press that you could <laughs> have any kind of nuclear engagement occur without response from the other side of a nuclear pipe. So I'm not entirely sure on that one. It's, it's very interesting to note. Like it is, it is a potential way it could have gone down. Like I said, it's two guys with guns pointing at each other having a knife fight. Is <laughs> 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 what is it? What what it amounts to? Right, and they explain like how they had like uh, commando units infiltrate strategic air commands along in Texas, so that way they can get the Mexican and Nicaraguan or the Cuban and Nicaraguan armies to flow through there. Uh, they had Russians cross the Bering Strait into Alaska to cut off the oil pipeline there. It's a weird line that he says. He's like Cheyenne down to Kansas and then somewhere else, <laughs> and I was like. Boy, that is a really weird line with not a whole lot of geological features that kind of get in the way. Yeah. <laughs> if you're looping around that way, because that's just going straight down the middle of the 
the plain states, you know? <laughs> right. So like you end up with this sort of like wedge, like the communist control, this sort of triangle. <clears throat> like if you were to turn America into a bunch of triangles where you have, you know, one on the West coast being one triangle and then the middle one, being on the other side of the Rockies, so east of the Rockies, but west of the Appalachian Mountains. And then the other, because that's how that's always plays out for America. Like you have two mountain ranges and then the land in the middle, right? So the Midwest is the part right. that's gotten invaded. And then you have the two sides that are still, you know, fighting, I guess. Free America is what we what we discover that they're called. Whether or not this would work as far as invasion goes, I don't know. <laughs> like it's yeah, because, I mean, if I'm reading this right, like, they really didn't control much. They controlled an interesting part, but it wasn't like they controlled California, which I don't understand how that would be possible. If you've got Colorado, you would want to do everything west <laughs> at that point. Yeah. Basically, the Japanese plan, which was to control the entire western coast of the United States. <laughs> right. And then go from there. <laughs> like you said, this is the I believe button if you're actually paying attention. But it's a 1984's action, 1984 action movie, so you shouldn't be cl- paying that close attention. Right. <laughs> There's a couple <laughs> real hard I believe buttons you got to press to make the movie workable. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why they were so fun. <laughs> yes. I fully, fully agree. <laughs> Running Man was on TV last night, and I watched it. <laughs> oh, man, Man. Oh, that is such a solid 80s movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I think that's it for us for this one. I know we didn't cover much, but I think uh, the parts that we did are, were pretty pretty solid. And now yeah. we're kind of getting into the... Um, I think we can call it the halfway point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's there's a definite shift. So you go from sort of a reactionary guerrilla movement, which is mostly, okay, we got into this chance encounter... We shot these guys up, then the then the Russians retaliated, then we retaliate, then we retaliate against their attempted retaliation, and then we, we plant a bomb. And it's all it's all kind of very retaliatory sort of stuff. It's all one thing leads to another kind of thing. We we see a shift here now that they've got a military guy from guerrilla warfare that's sort of haphazard to like really targeted action to guerrilla warfare, like full blown sort of stuff. Now that we've got the Colonel in there. Right. So now I say we are almost exactly halfway through. Good job us. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you again for, for sticking with us and we appreciate it. And uh, remember we've got a Patreon if you'd like to support us as well as a website, patthefatman.com and we're on Facebook and potentially Twitter soon. Uh, both me and Bruce are in the process of making accounts and then we'll start posting stuff. So we're going to be like the hip kids soon. Yeah. Those hip kids. Yeah. So that's right. <laughs> uh, it's been another episode of Pat and the fat man. I'm Pat. And I'm the fat man. Stay classy. Wolverines. Oh my gosh. Are we all the way back there? Yes. Oh. <laughs> oh. I'm sorry, Pat. Do you not have the energy for your anti-communist rant again? I thought that you I know d- the red-blooded American in you always had energy to denounce the, the communist. The communist. I, no, don't get me wrong. I always do. <laughs> it's always there, lurking in the shadows. I'm sorry, I don't Pat. Think that do was you, part do of this you one, not though. have enough energy for America, Pat? Is that what this is? <laughs> You know what? You know what? <laughs> <laughs> you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs>